What do MC Hammer and a job at a garden store have in common? It wouldn't seem like much, but stay tuned. I'm going to explain how learning how to adapt to one helped me in Las Vegas with the other. I'm Paul Shirley, and these are the stories I tell on dates. Las Vegas, a Saturday night. A man who looks like Ving Rhames is holding out his fist for a bump. Actually, it might be Ving Rhames for all I know. Terry Hatcher is one row ahead of us. The man who looks like Ving Rhames, he's a couple rows behind us, and his arm is reaching through an entire row to get to me. Congrats, he says with a solemn smile. I bump his fist and turn back to Scott. Again, he asks. Yup, I say, nodding and staring straight ahead, at a stage where Sting should be coming out at any moment. Even worse today, probably. Draft was this weekend. I chuckle at this, but I keep my face aimed at the stage. I don't need to give away the truth. The poor guy is probably excited. He thinks he's just met former USC quarterback Matt Leinert, the newest member of the NFL's Arizona Cardinals. Leinert and I are both tall and white, and we have the same hair and the same scruffy, hipster-approved beard. So I get it, especially here, relatively close to the stage at a Tiger Woods-sponsored charity event in a time when Tiger Woods isn't yet a known philanderer. This seems like the sort of place where Matt Leinert might be. You ready? Scott asks. The lights have just gone down. Sting is about to take the stage. I don't particularly care about Sting, but I'm happy to humor Scott, who thinks this is going to be great. Sure, I say, and Sting grabs the microphone. The next two hours are pleasant enough. Sting might not be my bag, but he does take my mind off the state of my life, which is a confusing state indeed. The girl who got me drunk for the first time, she wasn't kidding about not letting my guard down too much. On New Year's Eve, I rushed to a party to meet her after getting home from Seattle, where the exiled Chinese basketball team I was playing for had played two games in three days. When I arrived at the party, she seemed happy to see me. We spent the evening draped across one another in a chair before spending the night draped across one another in that bed in her apartment. But when we woke up the next morning, she rolled over and said, I think we should just be friends. And that, well... It wasn't a surprise, exactly. There'd been plenty of signs, like what she'd said that night she'd gotten me drunk, and what she'd said about how her parents would probably never be okay with me, and what she'd said about how she wasn't sure what she wanted from me or from life. However, just because it wasn't exactly a surprise didn't mean it didn't hurt, especially with it being New Year's and all. I spent the next month trying to win her back, a task that was complicated by the two other rails in my life, the Chinese basketball team and the television pilot. The former had come into my life because I'd been looking to hedge my bets when I moved to Los Angeles. 20th Century Fox had given us the go-ahead to write the pilot based on my idea, but that didn't mean we were going to get to make the pilot. So I'd begun casting about for a minor league basketball team that might be excited to have a player who'd spent part of each of the past three seasons playing in the NBA. Through an old teammate, I heard about a Chinese basketball team that was playing in the ragtag minor league called the ABA. The team had been kicked out of the top Chinese league because its owner had refused to sell its best player to one of the best two teams in the league. 
Or so the story went. Whatever the truth was, the team wanted a couple of Americans to serve as mentors when their players needed mentors and to serve as stopgaps when they needed a basket. At first, the arrangement had been ideal. I was allowed to do whatever I wanted on the court. We practiced only once a day, and I was keeping my hat in the ring in the off chance an NBA team needed someone for a short-term contract. But then things started to go sideways, as things will do when you're playing for an exiled Chinese basketball team that has put down shallow roots in Los Angeles. Our games were on television back in China. I thought this was true because the team had a passionate fan base back in the motherland, but I learned that the cameras were in place mostly so our eccentric owner could watch the games. But even that seemed acceptable until he started making substitutions from his bedroom. The procedure went as follows. He watched the games while connected via cellular phone to a woman who sat in the stands at all our games. If the owner saw something he didn't like, he'd tell the woman to make a change. She'd walk down to the bench, tap a Chinese player on the shoulder, and the player would walk past our hapless American coach and check himself into the game. When I first sniffed out what was going on, I was mildly amused. How pleasantly absurd. Until, of course, it started affecting me. I would go in for 45 seconds at a time and get pulled after making a basket, or because the owner's feet itched under his blankets in China, I could never tell. So, after a, quote, home game, we played in a recreation center in East Los Angeles. I folded up my jersey and handed it back to the team manager. In my game of life, basketball was banished to the back seat of my tiny plastic car. My decision had been made easier by the good news we were getting about our television pilot. Fox had commissioned us to film it. Under one condition, I had to learn how to act. The executives at Fox weren't sure we were going to be able to find someone to play the lead, as the lead needed to look like a basketball player, and Los Angeles isn't filled with actors who also look like basketball players. And so, my life has taken on a routine I never would have predicted. Every day I report to the Fox lot in Century City to meet with my new acting coach, a tiny fireball with a history of turning non-actors into passable ones. We bounce around the top floor of an abandoned soundstage with her reminding me to just be a kid and me slowly evolving into someone who might be good enough at acting to play himself. Then, when I'm done for the day, I go home to my apartment, which is next door to Scott's apartment, and we figure out what we're going to do that night. I met Scott in training camp with the Lakers when I was fresh out of college and had short Republican hair. We didn't talk much that time around, partly because I was fixated on basketball and partly because I could tell Scott was much cooler than I was. He was a mountain of a human, dwarfing everyone in camp except Shaquille O'Neal, with an easy charm that verged on being too easy. We lost contact when the Lakers sent me home. But then, after the Jewish girl broke up with me, I realized I was going to need some friends. So I called Scott, and he showed me what going out was really like, just like he's about to do now, because Sting is done, and we're about to hit the after party. What'd you think? Scott asks this as we navigate toward the house of blues that is inside this casino. I kept thinking he should be able to hold his notes longer, I say. Scott looks at me, his brow wrinkly. You know, because of the tantric thing? Scott laughs, a guffaw that sounds like something a medieval king would produce. He curls one of his giant mitts around my shoulders and I follow him inside. 
This feeling, I have to admit, is a nice one. For once, I've not had to be the trailblazer, the coordinator, the big brother. I've allowed Scott to take over when it comes to plans and lines and doormen. He knows people, and he can almost always talk his way into a party. Speaking of parties, this one isn't great. So it isn't long before we're out on the casino floor amongst the chain-smoking proletariat. Scott isn't thrilled by this turn of events. He's great with known obstacles, but less great with chaos. He also doesn't like doing normal things. Witness our setup here. The friend who invited us is a co-founder of some video game company. He paid for each of us to have our own suite in the Bellagio. He sent a Maybach to take us to the Sting concert. Then, up by a craps table that is only half-heartedly surrounded by gamblers. Prospect that might solve all our problems. Two teachers from Idaho having a girls' weekend. They're dressed like two teachers from Idaho should dress on a girls' weekend. Conservative blouses unbuttoned by two more buttons than in class. While we're talking to them, I look to Scott and watch him calculate. He looks like a lion deciding whether this is the time to strike. So, uh, girls, want to join us at the party? He's decided that it is. We walk back to the House of Blues. Scott is confident, I know, that we'll be able to get in. We've got the lanyards that allow us access, and it's never hard to get pretty girls into a party. Scott bounds up the steps to the doorman in front of the velvet rope, leaving me to talk to the girls. They are refreshingly kind-hearted, but I can already tell that they're watching Scott. As Craig Finn from The Hold Steady sings, guys go for looks, girls go for status. Scott is in conference with the burly doorman for longer than I expect, so I make the girls laugh, or try to. Such is the lot of the beta male, the role I am shoehorned into whenever Scott is around. There's a commotion at the top of the small set of stairs. It's Scott waving the doorman off. He slinks down the steps in a way that tells the story before he does. Dude says no pass, no entry. The girls are deflated. They thought they were going to a hot party with a couple of happening fellas. Now they're just standing in the casino, like every other pair of teachers from Idaho. We are just as deflated. We've pushed our chips into the middle with these two, and we already know the party isn't exactly Studio 54. At least, if we had them, we could make fun of it being dull together. Then, from behind the velvet rope, a particular black man appears with the suddenness of the genie he once dressed as. It's MC Hammer, and he's yelling at the doorman. Yo, what are you thinking? He can bring whoever he wants in here. Then MC Hammer points at me, and it hits me like the cannonball in the fat man's belly. MC Hammer thinks I'm Matt Leinert. I glance at Scott and say everything without saying anything. He gives me an almost imperceptible nod. I grab the hand of the nearest teacher from Idaho, who has suddenly gotten her glow back. <laughs> Scott puts his arm around the other teacher from Idaho, who is just as glowy, and we mount the steps like it's the end of Return of the Jedi. When we reach the top, I nod at the doorman, forgiving him for a crime he didn't commit. Then Scott pulls the two girls into the party, leaving me standing in front of MC Hammer. I have concerns. Like, have we met before? Is he going to ask me to sign something? 
Is he about to realize that there's no way a quarterback would be six foot nine? You good? He asks. He's drinking something red. Maybe vodka and cranberry. Maybe just cranberry. Yeah, I say. Cool, he says. He holds out a fist for me to bump. You need anything, you let me know, okay? I bump his fist and nod, because I think that's what Matt Liner would do. And then I scurry into the party after Scott and the teachers. When I arrive, everything has changed. For once, I'm the one who got us into the party. Never mind that it had nothing to do with me. Scott grins. So, Maddie, how's that offense looking? The girls are thoroughly confused. Scott offers to get drinks. I ask for a beer. He ducks into the crowd. The girls turn to me and one of them asks, What just happened? With a smile, I explain the mix-up. When I am done, the other one says, That's pretty quick thinking on your part. I don't know about that, I say. I think I was just trying to make an old boss proud. The looks on their faces tell me I should explain. Six. First job, worst job. When Jim Reese, the bald-headed proprietor of Skinner's Nursery and Garden Store, first asked me if I was looking for a weekend job that might turn into a summer job, I responded just like my parents had taught me whenever I didn't really want to do something. I said I'd think about it. I was poor, but I was 16. My Saturday nights were not occupied by beer bashes at the lake. They were spent fighting with my father and brothers about whether we would watch Saturday Night Live, American Gladiators, or Star Trek The Next Generation. It was a marvelous era for late-night television. In other words, I wasn't finding my poverty particularly alarming. That is, until a crisp spring day in Meriden when I asked Kelly Stepka if she'd come outside with me. After we were finished eating lunch, of course, it's getting nice, so it makes sense to go outside. Here, I would like to open this door for you. These are all things I said out loud. In front of the high school, with the flag's rope banging against the pole every four seconds, Kelly must have been able to see what was coming like she was a highway worker and I was a big rig driver barreling down the interstate at her with four shots of five-hour energy in his stomach. But to her credit, she played along, saying nothing as I fidgeted, staring at the concrete for too long before finally looking her in her glasses-clad blue eyes and saying, Um, so, I was just wondering, let's say that, you know, like, if I asked you on a date, would you say yes? We'd been doing a lot of SAT prep, so the analogy that came to mind for how I felt while I awaited her answer was, my heart is to my throat as a goose is to a garden hose. Kelly pushed her bangs out of her eyes and smiled in the way girls can do to let you know that even though you're an idiot of the highest order, they're letting you off with the slap on the wrist. I would say I would be delighted, she said. The goose dissolved into a warm, contented, terrified feeling in my stomach. I was going on a date. That night, as I lay in bed, I conjured an image of Kelly's strawberry blonde hair and how it had that poof in front, like every girl had in 1994. Kelly had had me vexed for months. This was her thing. She was a serial vexer. 
One month, it was Max Phelan. The next, Darren Dinsmore. Now it was my turn, as evidenced by the tiny notes we exchanged in geometry class. The precursor to texting. Sometimes, the precursor to sexting. She tossed them over her shoulder onto my desk when the teacher was at the board. I read them, wrote my response on the back, and tossed them into her lap. I had a collection of them in my sock drawer. I imagined what it would be like if Kelly were to pick me as hers, how that would feel. Then I went past imagination. I made it a reality. Kelly would be my girlfriend soon. We'd start hanging around at each other's houses and going to things together and... Wait. This could get expensive. And I didn't have any money. The next day, I called Jim Reese and asked if the job was still available. He said it was. I told him I was in. He told me to come to work on Sunday. On Saturday, I picked up Kelly at two in the afternoon. When we got to my house, I challenged her to a game of one-on-one on the concrete slab that my brothers and I had helped my father install three years before. Kelly had spent the season as the starting point guard on the varsity basketball team, so it was logical, I thought, to involve as much basketball as I could. During our game, which I engineered as both a win and a loss for me, no blocking shots, copious post-ups for the sake of body contact, I sweated through the t-shirt I'd picked out specifically for this event, a new one my mother let me get at J.C. Penney. Its back said something about fear and not having it, a philosophy I desperately wanted to make my own. After I changed into my backup outfit, likely something made by J.C. Penney's store brand, Arizona Jeans Company, I joined Kelly in front of the television and we watched the University of Kansas win a basketball game. At halftime, Kelly lay down on her stomach on the floor in front of me, her jean shorts riding up when she plopped down, and I visualized the day when I might be able to act on the impulses that flashed like lightning through my brain every time I saw the faint tan lines in front of me. Which wasn't then, obviously. I mean, it's not like I had the house to myself or anything. I absolutely, positively had the house to myself. After the game, Kelly and I went into the kitchen to look at the day's Topeka Capital Journal to check the listings, and I acted like I hadn't long since poured over our options, and like I didn't know that we only had one, really, because A, we were only 16, and B, it was the spring. Summertime would have been easier. We wouldn't have had to watch Guarding Tess starring Nicolas Cage and my inadvertent namesake, Shirley MacLaine. Then... A drink of water and the walk downstairs after I checked to make sure the sliding door was shut and the dogs were inside. Next up, the passenger door, because that's what a gentleman does. And then, as I walked from her door to mine, a sigh of relief. So far, my plans had gone swimmingly. Basketball in vivo had kept us focused on a common activity, and basketball eminus had kept us focused on a common activity and a movie would surely keep us focused on yet another common activity. We just had to get through the drive to the theater. No reason to worry about that, though, because I had a plan for that, too. I started the station wagon I was only allowed to borrow on special occasions, and we rode up the back driveway at my parents' house, past the apricot tree, and left onto a gravel road that would one day be labeled 43rd Street, but back then was just the one that ran along the north side of our property. I waited for the next left onto Detler Road, and I began thinking back to the list I'd made up the day before. Three questions I could ask. I'd even written them down, 
in the haphazard cursive I would employ until an engineering teacher taught me in college how to write in block letters. So, what's your favorite movie? Relevant, I'd thought when putting together the list. We were, in fact, driving to a movie. Hmm. Kelly said, or intoned, or something meant to indicate that she wasn't all that interested in my line of questioning. I don't really think I have one. It's so hard to pick, especially when you consider that there are all sorts of movies, comedies, and dramas, and it's really hard to compare them, don't you think? Kelly, if I thought that, I wouldn't have asked the question, but thank you for preparing me for the sort of bullshit answer that dull girls will give to that question for the upcoming two decades. The real problem, though, was that question one hadn't even gotten us to K4. We weren't even out of the gravel. But no fear, exclamation point. They call it a list for a reason. So what do you think you'll do after high school? Uh, probably go to KU. Wait, I didn't mean, what are you going to do for the four years immediately following high school? I meant, what are you going to do within the totality of your life? Your hopes, your dreams, your ambitions. Fill the air with your zany plans and wacky goals. Tell me everything. Or answer this crafty follow-up question, which I just came up with. But, like, after that. I don't know. It's a long way off. The good news was that we'd made it to Highway 24, so we had only 10 miles to go to the Westridge 6 Theater. The bad news, I only had one question left. I'd really thought these questions would inspire longer answers. Have you ever thought about who would come to your funeral? Her mouth twitched. What do you mean? I don't know, like, do you ever think about who would come or who would want to come? And by this, I wanted to broach, in a 16-year-old's way, what it means to leave a legacy. Does it matter, really, what we do or what people will think of us when we're gone if we can't actually see who comes to our funerals? I wanted Kelly to imagine we could, just for a little while, just to see where it took us. She crossed her arms. I don't like to think about things like that. We rode the rest of the way to Topeka in an awkward, somewhat macabre silence. Guarding Tess was mostly awful, but it did give us something to talk about on our walk through Westridge Mall's parking lot, en route to the station wagon. Then, for the trip home, quiet again. I told myself that silence was okay. I had on my side darkness and fatigue and the safest radio station I could think of, Magic 108. Playing all your favorites from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. At Kelly's house, she reached across the seat and hugged me. I made no moves, no efforts at a first kiss. The crush of her chest against mine was plenty. A promise of things to come, on later dates. And anyway, I had to go to work in the morning. Skinner's Nursery and Garden Store was exactly 14 minutes from my parents' house, assuming you didn't get caught by either of the stoplights on the way. On my first day, I cruised through those intersections in the same station wagon, the radio dial on 105.9, the college alt-rock station I actually liked. Alice in Chains had just released the album with the three-legged dog on it. Today, by Smashing Pumpkins, was, I was pretty sure, the best song I'd ever heard. 
I parked the car in the grass in back of the customer parking lot and went inside, where Jim Reese explained my duties. I was in charge of assisting customers to their cars with whatever purchases they'd made. I smiled at old ladies and joked with cashiers, and my six-hour day slipped by like a buckskin canoe in a gurgling creek. At the end of the afternoon, standing next to a display case filled with every variety of flower and vegetable seed I'd ever imagined, Jim held out his hand and I shook it, and he said he'd see me next Sunday. I got into the station wagon and turned on the radio, tired but satisfied. I'd survived my first day of work and I'd made something like $25. Plenty of money for another date. All I had to do was ask Kelly. But asking Kelly turned out to be trickier than I expected. For some reason, I didn't run into her at school as often that next week. But no matter, I thought, this would just give me a chance to save up a little more money. I went to work again the next Sunday, folded my boxes, helped my old ladies, shook Jim's hand, got back into the station wagon. The drive home didn't feel quite as good, but I knew what the problem was. I needed that second date. I needed to get serious about chaos plus PS. That week, I found Kelly between classes and asked her if she wanted to go out again. She looked at me, her head tilting as her eyes narrowed. I don't know, she said. Okay, I said. Let me know when you decide. As anyone with a vague understanding of human behavior could predict, Kelly had already decided. It took me a little longer to get the message, like about the time Kelly stopped sitting in front of me in geometry, thus destroying our line of communication, her right shoulder, over which we'd tossed the notes we were writing on inch-long scraps of notebook paper. The end of the notes meant no more fantasies about back rubs in hot tubs, no more jokes about our teacher's Lego hair, no more requests for phone calls, and it was official. Kelly had moved on to vexing other members of my class. I'd never been close to having a girlfriend, a realization that hit me like a kick from a cartoon kangaroo one night in bed, a few days after Kelly switched seats in geometry. I turned off the light in my basement bedroom and curled around a belly that was filled with inexplicable spasms as I sobbed myself to sleep. But rejection at the hands of Kelly Stepka did not absolve me of my handshake commitment to working at Skinner's. I'd agreed to an entire summer of employment, three days a week, two eight-hour weekdays, and one six-hour Sunday. Jim Reese had on his payroll more people than he needed. This wasn't true because Jim was soft-hearted or even all that charitably minded. If I had to guess, I'd say Jim Reese was a Republican. No, Jim had grown up thinking like my father does, which is to say that he thought the owner of a business had a responsibility to his workers. Once they were under his care, they became like children, nieces or nephews at least, and he was required to treat them accordingly. Well, that was the explanation I came up with for the pair of layabouts that roamed the gravel-covered section of Skinner's nursery. The leader was a simpleton named Gus K. K because no one could spell or pronounce his last name. Eight or nine or ten letters. I think there was a Z in there, and three vowels might have lined up next to one another. Gus K had an IQ of about 80, which actually might have suited someone in his role, had that person also been blessed with something like work ethic. But Gus K spent most of the days he was supposed to be taking care of plants wandering the premises, his lazy eye seeking out a sympathetic ear for his complaints about how much he was having to work and how little he was getting paid for it. 
Gus K's sidekick was a lanky high school dropout who looked like the lead singer of Incubus and who invariably showed up to work in a t-shirt cut into a tank top. Yeah! The 19-year-old you hope your daughter won't fall for when she's 16. Add in two ladies in charge of potting, two Mexicans who worked hard but didn't speak a lick of English, a strapping, square-headed man named Dave who taught me how to shovel decorative gravel without snapping a vertebra, and there you had it, the staff at Skinner's Nursery. And then there was me. On my first summer weekday on the lot, I wandered through the rows and rows of trees and shrubs, hoping someone would tell me what to do. When no one did, I did what I thought any reasonable employee would do. I asked the boss. When I knocked, Jim's eyes shot to mine from the work orders and receipts he was studying. I explained why I was standing there. I didn't know what I was supposed to be doing. He considered my plight for a few seconds before standing and grabbing a jacket. Come on, he said. We walked through the inner building to the yard and Jim commandeered a bobcat, one of those smallish earth movers you see on landscaping jobs. He explained that we needed to move a bunch of freshly potted trees from one section of the property to another. We got to work and the day passed, him telling me what to do, me sometimes performing that thing correctly. The next day, I went back to Jim's office. This time, he told me to ask young Brandon Boyd what needed done. That ought to keep you busy for a while, he said as he walked away. He was right. Young Brandon Boyd was all too eager to find a willing assistant. He pointed at the rows and rows of round plastic pots with young trees and shrubs in them. See all those? I nodded. Well, they need to be watered every day. The network of hoses at Skinner's made me think of space exploration. Each of us connected to a hose was also connected to the main building. Let go and you'd be lost. Or maybe this was just one of the many ways I kept myself from losing my mind, as I stood in the sun, holding the long sprayer attachment above each plant for three or four seconds before moving the apparatus a few inches left, right, up, down, to wherever the next plant was. It was mind-numbing soul-crushing work. Mind-numbing, soul-crushing work that I'd soon look back upon fondly. On my next day at Skinner's, the rain clouds that had hovered over the Kansas River Valley since dawn broke loose and took over for our hoses and nozzles. Everyone else went to the break room, a place I didn't like much thanks to the smell of fertilizer and whenever Gus Kay and young Brandon Boyd were eating, the oddly graphic conversations about whatever women they'd somehow lured into their houses the previous weekend. Or said they had. I went to ask Jim if there was anything I could do. Once again, he looked up from some paperwork. Once again, he grabbed a jacket. Once again, he said, come on. We walked outside and I pulled my own jacket close to guard against the heavy raindrops that, from the looks of it, were going to mean no one was going to have to water any plants for a few days. Jim and I trudged to the very back of the yard and he showed me inside of one of the lath houses, half moon shaped greenhouses made of clear plastic and two by four that also looked like they would have been at home on another planet. When we were inside, Jim explained that this was where all the plants that would eventually end up in the yard got their start. Then he grabbed one. See these weeds? I inspected the rumpled surface of dirt where a few tiny green shoots had broken through. These little plants can't handle them. They're too small, so I need them pulled. He handed me the pot. That's where you come in. 
I looked at the pot and then down the length of the laugh house, which seemed to stretch to a point at the far end. All of them? I said. All of them. It wasn't so bad that first day. The rain outside was calming, and I quickly figured out that an upturned five-gallon bucket made a pretty good seat. But by day two, the warning signs were red and blinky. This wasn't a job I was born for. At their respective peaks, the laugh houses were six feet tall. I was already 6'4", and I was rarely pulling weeds underneath the house's peaks. That's where the walkway was. I could usually be found under the far edge where the ceiling was only three or four feet off the ground. I looked like a hermit crab, scuttling around, my prey the stubborn weeds in the tiny plastic containers. Weeds that didn't stay gone, mind you. By the time I finished a house, weeds had already started to grow at the start. I'm starting to miss my space hose. Affirmative. Oh, and there were eight of these lath houses. But surely I wouldn't have to weed all of them. Why, yes, Jim said. This is your new job. To combat the crushing boredom that hung over my work life like the cloud in a Peanuts comic strip, I used the Sony boombox that sat on my desk at home, compact disc and dual cassette, thank you very much, to make tapes of all ten CDs I owned for use in the knockoff discman that I now carried to work like a lunch pail. My other strategy for time killing was a personal reward system I perfected over the course of several weeks. After my first hour of weeding, I allowed myself to go inside and get a drink of water. After another hour and a half, I could buy an orange slice at the pop machine. Then came lunch, with Gus K. telling lies about exploits with some woman who had to have been named Kathy or Debbie. In the afternoon, another water break, and then, around 3.30, I visited the gum machine. A quarter got me 17 or 18 chiclets of various flavors. My decisions regarding which to chew next ate up at least 15 minutes. With the help of my homemade tapes and the gum and the water and slice breaks, I survived the worst of the summer. Soon enough, the weeds weren't growing so fast, and young Brandon Boyd put me back on watering, which, by contrast, was almost like a vacation. Yeah! When the summer ended, I told Jim thanks for the job and said I'd talk to him next spring about the following summer. A variation on, I'll think about it. But this time, I was telling a lie. I hated my job at Skinner's so much that I got teary-eyed some nights at the thought of going to work the next day, probably because I'd finished some of my days with spasms in my wrist thanks to all the weed pulling. I didn't talk to Jim Reese until I saw him at church a year and a half later, after I'd put under my belt a summer at Four Seasons Family Pools and Spas. I asked Jim why he'd assigned me such an awful duty as pulling weeds in those laugh houses. Hell, I don't know, he said with a laugh. I was paying you minimum wage, but you kept asking me if I needed something done. And since you kept asking, I was glad to oblige. But that job you gave me was brutal. He held up a finger. Let that be a lesson to you, son. If you don't want the worst job in the place, don't ask the boss what he needs done. You gotta learn to go with the flow. His words helped crystallize something that had been floating around in my head while I was pulling weeds. It was clear that I wasn't made for a life pulling weeds, or anything really, that involved such routine monotony. So I decided I would become a professional basketball player. 
I didn't tell anyone about this decision because people from Meriden, Kansas do not become professional basketball players. People from Meriden, Kansas don't even like it when people make ludicrous claims about wanting to become professional basketball players. Instead of talking about my plans, I disguised them. In college, I got an engineering degree because that was responsible. I told people I was thinking of going to graduate school after college. But deep down, I knew. One day, I would play basketball for money. In part because I loved playing basketball, but also because I knew that when I got there, I wouldn't have to worry about asking the boss what to do because what basketball players need to do is pretty obvious. So I'd solved that little problem. But that didn't mean I'd fixed everything. I still had a lot to learn when it came to the reason I'd gotten myself into the mess at Skinner's. Girls. The next winter, Kelly Stepka's powers of vexation boomeranged back around to me, and we went to winter formal together. She wore a tan dress that showed off her hip bones, and I wondered if Kelly and I might become an item, an even more attractive possibility senior year, as Kelly had not gotten worse looking. This wonderment did not, however, cause me to worry about getting a job or making any plans, because fuck that. If Kelly wanted to make me her boyfriend, it would happen not because of the plans I could make or the things I would buy her, but because Kelly liked me how I was. I congratulated myself on my newfound apathy. I'd learned something from Jim Reese. I was going with the flow. This was going to work. Then, three days after winter formal, Kelly dropped me again and began dating Jed Traxler, a relationship that resulted in the disappearance of Kelly's virginity, a bit of magic I'd always imagined having a role in, although I wasn't sure how. Kelly and Jed stayed together through prom and graduation, and they gave it a shot from long distance as freshmen in college, her at Kansas State, him at the University of Kansas. I was tempted in my second round of Stepka heartbreak to think Jim Reese had been wrong. After all, I'd gone with the flow, just like he'd said, and it hadn't worked, not even close. But that would have been a short-sighted interpretation of the facts. It's not just going with the flow that counts. You also need to have the sort of flow that someone wants to go with, Teenaged Kelly Stepka was never going to be the right girl for teenaged me. I needed the kind of girl who would think it cute that I wrote out a cue card for our conversation. The kind of girl who would have questions of her own on our way to the movies. The kind of girl who would have an answer if I asked her who she thought was going to come to her funeral. Specifically, that she wondered if maybe, just maybe, I'd be there. Or the kind of girl who will be mildly impressed that I don't break character when MC Hammer thinks I'm Matt Leinert. The kind of girl who will laugh at my story about Jim Reese and <laughs> Kelly Stepka. The kind of girl who, when the party is over, will come back to my room at the Bellagio where we do a bunch of dry humping until four in the morning. Not exactly an outcome befitting a newly drafted NFL quarterback but just about the right outcome for someone who spent part of the night pretending to be one. Thanks for staying all the way to the end. On a serious note, I appreciate that you took the time to listen to my voice, and I hope you'll subscribe and share with your friends. A big thank you to Lunch Break Entertainment for their help in bringing this to life.